This morning I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 3, allow me to begin reading at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end will come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they called and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Once again, we're told that a large crowd gathered around Jesus. Now, this seems to be a repetitive theme in Mark's gospel. Every place Jesus goes, he attracts a large crowd. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in the home of Simon Peter. And the scripture writer tells us that the whole town gathered at the front door. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is preaching and teaching in a Capernaum house, and it is Mark who tells us there were so many people in that house, there was no room left, not even outside the door. Earlier in Mark chapter 3, Jesus had called and selected the 12 disciples. He wanted to get them away to the lake, and the author tells us that a large crowd from Galilee followed him. By the time you get to Mark chapter 3, verse 20, We find Jesus once again in a house. And once again, there is a large crowd. What is consistent in all of these examples of a large crowd is that those crowds are full of needy people. People who have physical needs and spiritual needs and financial needs, all types of needs. And Jesus is benevolent towards them. In our story, we are told that Jesus is so preoccupied with doing ministry 
that he and the disciples did not even have time to eat. Now, you know, it's big, bad, and busy when 13 grown men skip lunch to do ministry. And these guys are not just grown men, they're preachers. And when was the last time you heard of 13 preachers skipping lunch to do anything, right? I mean, these guys, they skip a meal in order to do ministry. I think that's Mark's way of showing us once again that Jesus is preoccupied with God's mission. There's a sense of urgency in the life and ministry of Jesus He's on a crash collision course. He knows that time is of the essence. He immediately goes here and immediately goes there. You can hear the urgency in his voice when he says to the crowd, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent today. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till next month. Don't wait till another opportune time. But today, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see the determination in his demeanor. When in Mark chapter one, it is the apostle Peter who comes to him and says, why don't we stay put for another day? Because yesterday was such a great day of ministry. And Jesus says, no, I must go to neighboring villages and preach the gospel there for that is why I have come. You hear the urgency in his voice. You see the determination in his step. And even on this day in our passage, Jesus and the disciples skip a meal in order to do ministry. Why? Because there's a large crowd and those crowds are full of needy people. And Mark, even more so than any of the other gospel writers, Describe Jesus as being obsessed with obedience. He is obsessed with the mission of the Father. He is obsessed with going to Calvary. He is obsessed with obedience to God and to his will. That causes us to ask the question, with what are we obsessed? It's never a question of are you obsessed, it's with what are you obsessed in order to find the answer to that question, all you have to do this morning is just answer truthfully three questions. Who do you think about the most? Who do you rearrange your schedule for? Who do you make it your aim to please? You answer those three questions and it will undoubtedly reveal the object of your obsession. And the truth of the matter is, for some of us, we're obsessed with our children. That's who we think about the most. That's who we rearrange our schedule for. Some of us are obsessed with our spouse. That's who we make it our aim to please. Other people are obsessed with their jobs or their business or making money. That's what seems to preoccupy our mentality. That, that's what dictates the decisions that we make in our life so we can make as much money as possible. Why? So we can have the things that we want and do the things that we want. Oh, but most of us are pretty much obsessed with ourselves. That's who we think about the most. That's who we rearrange our schedule for. That's who we make it our aim to please. We want to please ourselves. Yet here, Mark shows us in vivid clarity that Jesus was obsessed not with himself, but with his mission. It was a God-given mission. And so he was preoccupied with doing the will of the Father. Several years ago, I attended a national conference on preaching in Atlanta, Georgia. And there I heard Crawford Loritz he made a statement in his sermon that I have yet to forget. He said, one of the most uh, common characteristics of anybody that can be trusted with God's mission is that they have a radical, immediate obedience to God. A radical, immediate 
obedience to God. He says, if you want to receive the mission of God, if you want to partake in God's mission, then you must demonstrate radical, immediate obedience. If you do not demonstrate radical, immediate obedience, then you will not receive the God-given mission. You will not be part of his cosmic plan. But every, every person who is serious about the Lord and serious about his mission, that individual possesses a radical, immediate obedience. He went on to say in his sermon that the will of God is worth dying for. I think you have to agree with Crawford Loritz today, don't you? I mean, you sit back and you think to yourself, God's been good to me. I mean, everything I have has been provided by the Lord. God has been so good to me that the least I can do is be radically, immediately obedient unto him. That the least I can offer unto him is everything that I have because everything I have has been given to me by him. So therefore, it's the very least I can do but to live for the one who died for me. Because if you're anything like me, you could give testimony that God's been good to you. You're who you are and where you are because of God. There's some of you who should not be alive today. The doctors gave you no hope, but God gave you a new lease on life. There's some of you who still should not be married today because of what you said to her and what she did to you. And let's be face it, you're not the easiest person to live with. But what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. Some of you ought not to have the job that you have, but God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he's just allowing you to supervise and manage some of his financial portfolio. Some of you should not have the money in the bank account. You shouldn't have that much money. You shouldn't have that money in the bank account. Yet every time you get to the end of the month, there's just enough money. And some of you should not have the food in the cupboard that you got. But every time you open that cupboard door, there's just enough flour and just enough oil because God has been good to you. God has blessed you. God has helped you. God has made a way when there was no way. God has given you hope in hopelessness and help in helplessness. God has blessed you. And you have to agree with Crawford Loritz that at the very least, I've got to be radically, immediately obedient under the will of God. This is what we find in Jesus. Jesus models this for us. He demonstrates what it looks like to be obsessed with obedience. His family didn't understand it. We are told that the family of Jesus heard that he was skipping meals. Probably not sleeping enough. Probably getting up too early, staying up too late. The family said, you know, he's got this God complex. He's always about God's business. He's, he's always thinking about God and doing God's work and doing God's will. And so the family came down to take charge of Jesus. You ever tried to take charge of Jesus? You ever tried to tell Jesus what to do and what he can't do? You ever tried to tell Jesus where to go and where he should not go? You ever tried to take charge of Jesus? The word take charge means to arrest, to apprehend, to bring into custody, use force if necessary. 
That's what the family members thought. They said, we're going to go down there because who knows better than the family of what Jesus ought to do. And so we need to go down there and we need to get him back in line. He's out of line. He's off the ranch. He is, uh, he, he's doing some things that he ought not to do. He, he's, he's burning, uh, the, the, uh, both ends of the candle. I mean, he's going to get burned out and he's got this God complex. It's okay to help some people. It's all right to give some life lessons, but Jesus, he, he's gone well out of bounds. We need to go down and take charge of Jesus. That's really kind of funny, isn't it? Because how do you, how do you arrest the one who arranged the stars in space? How do you apprehend the one who is the omnipotent God of the universe? How do you bring into custody the one who is the omnipresent God of the universe? Yet they came down and they said, we're going to take charge of Jesus. We're going to arrest him. We're going to apprehend him. We're going to put him in his place. Why? Because the family thought he's out of his mind. It's easy to mistake zeal for insanity. And that's what the family did. They thought Jesus was insane. He's out of his mind. You know, people never know what to do with crazy Christians. People never know what to do with crazy Christians. People who are, you know, kind of on the edge, on the fringe, all they think about, all they're consumed with is God and, and his gospel and his mission and, 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 and people, even in the church, don't know what to do with people that are on fire for the Lord, crazy for Christ. People don't know what to do with crazy Christians. It's not that we don't know what to do with crazy people. No, we celebrate some crazy people because the reality is we think it's cute when a husband is crazy for his wife. Oh, we think it's adorable when a woman is crazy for her fiance. And we think it's so precious when a grandfather is crazy, head over heels crazy for his granddaughter. In all those cases, we think that's really good. That's cute. It needs to be celebrated, right? We know how to handle that kind of craziness, but not a craziness for Christ. We don't know what to do with people that are over the top insanely obedient unto the Lord. We don't know what to do with crazy Christians. We know what to do with crazy people who rearrange their schedule every Saturday in the fall, paint their bodies different colors, go into a stadium and scream like madmen. You know what we call that? We call that well-placed passion. You know what I call it? Crazy. That's just crazy. Right. We, we, we celebrate some craziness, right? I mean, even in our culture, even in the church, we celebrate some level of craziness. But when people get crazy for God, when people get uh, just kind of insane for the Lord, we don't know what to do. And so the family comes down and they say, he's out of his mind. We're going to have to set him straight. We're going to put some guardrails in his life. He's not eating. He's not sleeping right. He's, he's obsessed with this God mission. We've got to help him. So they came to take charge of Jesus. The family's not the only one who tried to ridicule the Lord. We're also told that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. They said, he's possessed by a devil. He is possessed by a demon. I guess being demon possessed is one step further than being insane. It's one thing for your family to say you're out of your mind, you're insane. It's another thing for other religious people to look at you and say, you are demon possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He drives out demons. Jesus spoke to the scribes using parables. 
He used this to illustrate the problem in their thinking. He said, uh, how can Satan divide himself? If a kingdom is divided, it will not stand. If a house is divided, it will not stand. If Satan is divided, he's not made stronger but weaker, and his kingdom will not stand. So what you're saying doesn't make any sense. How can I, by the devil, cast out devils? How is that even possible? It doesn't make any logical sense. And then in verse 27, he gives a one sacred verse parable that describes his God-given mission. He says, no one can enter a house of a strong man and rob that man's possessions unless he first binds the strong man, then he can rob his house. Friend, in that one sentence, Jesus is telling all of us his divine mission. For he came to reclaim some stolen property. He came to rescue from some stolen possessions. He's identifying the devil as the strong man, but himself as the stronger man. The devil is strong, but Jesus is stronger. The devil is mighty, but Jesus is mightier. The devil is smart, but Jesus is smarter. And Jesus says, the reason I've come is to bind Satan. The reason I've come is to bind up the strong man, go into his house and take some things that don't belong to him because he has taken some things that do not uh, belong to him. It's not his to have. In fact, he has abducted some precious possessions of God. He has incarcerated some individuals with shame and guilt and depression. He has locked some people up with drugs and sex and crime. He has taken some things that do not belong to him. He's taken as if, as if people belong to him. He's abducted people. He has twisted the truth of God. He has taken uh, God's word and manipulated it. And so Jesus said, I've come to set some captives free. I have come to reclaim some stolen property. I have come to bring back and to liberate some things that are incarcerated by the devil. So Jesus says, I came so that the devil would be bound and God's people would be set free. That's what we see Jesus doing in Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3. In Mark chapters 1 and 2, it is Jesus who comes and he breaks the fever of sickness. It is Jesus who comes and says to the leper, I am willing, be clean. It's Jesus who comes and says to the paralytic, not only do I have the power to say your sins are forgiven, but while you're at it, just get up, bend down, take up your mat and walk out. It is Jesus who says, I have the power even on the Sabbath to come in and to bind the strong man and say to that man who had a shriveled hand, stretch out your hand and it will be healed. Jesus said, I came on a rescue mission. I came to rescue you. I came to retrieve you. I came to reclaim you. I came to bring back to God some of his precious possessions, the very people of God, because you have been bound by Satan long enough. I came to bind Satan. I came into his house. I came to his neck of the woods. I came to say to Satan, you are bound and you have no more power. I am Jesus, the stronger man. In one sacred sentence, Jesus gives us a mighty parable about his mission. He came on a rescue mission to retrieve that which was lost, to take back some stolen property. So friend, I want you to know that on this day, you fight against a bound adversary. You fight against an adversary. Yes, he's strong, but he's bound. 
Yes, he's mighty, but he's not as mighty as Christ. Yes, he is crafty, but he's not as intelligent as the one who knows everything. It is Jesus who came and he bound the adversary. When did Jesus bind Satan fully? At Calvary. For on that faithful Friday, Jesus was taken outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And there he was beaten and bruised for your sins and mine. And the Roman soldiers, they stretched him wide. They raised him high. They laid him low into the grave. And all Friday afternoon, the devil and the demons partied. Into the wee hours of Friday night, they partied like it was 1999. Into Saturday, they partied, they celebrated, they hooped and they hollered. For they said, we have destroyed the stronger man. We have destroyed Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Because in Mark's gospel, it seemed that the only ones who know the accurate identity of Jesus is the demons. They know he is Christ. They know he's Son of God. And on that Saturday, oh, they partied. On that Saturday afternoon, they celebrated. On that Saturday night, they were hooping and hollering. And early on Sunday morning, something happened. Early on Sunday morning morning, Jesus got up out of the grave. The dead body began to breathe. Jesus got up and he placed the bow on the bound Satan. And Jesus came and he says to you and to me, come and follow me. I will give you eternal life. He says, I want you to say to bound Satan, no more do you have rule over my house. No longer do you have rule over my marriage. No longer can you have any of my children. No longer can you have any of my grandchildren. No longer can you have any of my finances. No longer can you have any of my past. No longer can you have any of my future. Because why? Because we are fighting against an adversary and he is bound both now and forevermore. He is completely and utterly defeated. He is bound. Why? Because King Jesus showed up. He came on a rescue mission. He came to rescue us and to reclaim some stolen property. Jesus continued in verse 28. Jesus said, all the Sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. For he has committed an eternal sin. Many people have asked the question, what is that unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 3? What is the unpardonable sin? And throughout the ages, people have tried to identify that unpardonable sin. They said, well, maybe it's some action, something like suicide or a heinous crime, murder, rape, incest. Maybe it's something like that. And the reality from this passage is that while those things are tragic and heinous, suicide, murder, rape, incest. All those things are terrible sins, but they're not the unpardonable sin. Others have said, well, what if the unpardonable sin is something that is so vague that I could accidentally do it and not even realize it? What, what if, what if I, as a, as a Christian, as a believer, what, what if I did something and I didn't know how bad it really was. And, and, and I didn't know that I committed the unpardonable sin until that day when I stand before the Lord on judgment day. And he says to me, you have committed the unpardonable sin and you did it on September the 3rd, 2015. And you thought to yourself, I didn't have any idea. I didn't know that. What if the unpardonable sin is something that is so shifty that, that we, 
that we may do it and not even know it. Friend, if you've ever had that kind of thought and conversation in your mind, that's a pretty good indication that you've never committed the unpardonable sin. So what is the unpardonable sin? What is the sin that carries eternal ramifications? According to this passage, it's attributing the work of Christ as if it belonged to the devil. That's what the scribes do. They witness and they see the work of God in Christ. And they claim that's the devil. And Jesus says that is the unpardonable sin. That is the sin that has eternal consequences. Let me synthesize that down even further. The unpardonable sin is denying the identity of Jesus. That's the unpardonable sin. That's the sin that cannot be forgiven. Denying the identity of Jesus. Once again, remember, why is Mark writing his gospel? He tells you in the opening line, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus He calls him Christ, son of God. The entire gospel will hang on those two confessions. It is Peter who will say you are the Christ. It is the Roman centurion who will say you are the son of God. Peter is a Roman. Uh, Peter is is a Jew and the Roman centurion is a Gentile. Both Jew and Gentiles can come to faith in Christ. And when they come to faith in Jesus, they declare the accurate identity of Jesus as the Christ, the son of God. To deny the identity of Jesus, to attribute his work to the activity of the devil, that is the unpardonable sin that will never be forgiven. That's why Jesus says with urgency, repent today for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. A person who repents, a person that comes to Jesus in faith, a person that acknowledges that Jesus is Christ, he's son of God, that person will never commit the unpardonable sin because you will persevere and God will help you to persevere until the very last day. But Jesus says to the scribes, You're committing something that cannot be forgiven. You're attributing my work to the work of the devil. Mark tells us uh, why Jesus said that was because they were continuing to say. They were saying Jesus is possessed by an evil spirit. This is something they did not once, but they repeated it over and over and over again. It's been my observation that if people are hostile toward God, they continue to be hostile toward God, and that hostility grows and grows and grows the longer they are. In fact, I've heard one theologian say that even all of eternity in hell will not diminish their hostility toward God. In fact, it will it will uh, intensify their hostility toward God, and they will continue to deny the identity of Jesus as Christ, Son of God. Well, eventually, mom and dad show up. Eventually, the, the mother and the brothers of Christ show up. And they're outside the house. They send word into the house. It finally gets to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? Maybe not the wisest thing to say when somebody's accusing you of being insane and demon possessed. But nonetheless, that's what Jesus says. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking to his disciples, those seated closest to him, he said, here are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Whoever does God's will, that's my mother, my sister, and my brother. 
Mark, who is a marvelous storyteller, gives us a beautiful optic at the end of chapter 3. He shows people on the outside of the house, and he shows people on the inside of the house. And he compares and contrasts outsiders and insiders. And it's almost as if Mark is asking you, the reader of his gospel, where are you standing in this story? Are you an outsider? Are you an insider? Are you somebody outside the house, like the mother and the brothers of Jesus who came to take charge of him? Or are you on the inside of the house, like his disciples, those people who place faith in him, identifying his work as coming from God, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God? Are you an outsider? Are you an insider? An outsider tries to arrest Jesus. An insider tries to worship Jesus. An outsider calls Jesus crazy. An insider calls Jesus Christ. An outsider tries to give orders to Jesus. An insider tries to listen to the instructions of Jesus. An outsider tries to tell Jesus, come and follow me. An insider tells Jesus, I will go and follow you. An outsider gets thoroughly perturbed with Jesus, but an insider gets obsessed with obedience to Jesus. Friend, are you an outsider or an insider? Are you on the outside of the house or the inside of the house? And the beautiful thing about the gospel is if today you find yourself on the outside looking in, today before this sermon is over, you can be an insider because the way you get into the kingdom of God is to know the identity of Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. He died on the cross for my sins. He died on the cross for your sins. And though he was buried on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead and by that he bound Satan both now and forevermore. So you have victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. Oh friend, you can go from being an outsider to an insider just because you believe that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future And life is worth the living just because he lives. Only God can do that. And I, for one, testify that Jesus is Christ. He is son of God. And by that testimony, you go from an outsider to an insider. So this morning, if you find yourself on the outside, I invite you to accurately see the identity of Jesus as Christ, son of God. Don't walk out of here still denying Christ. I implore you to come and accept the Lord Jesus. You can always tell who an insider is because the insider longs to be obedient to the will of God. So friend, be obsessed about Christ. Be obsessed about the one who knew no sin but became sin for us. Be obsessed about the one who flung the stars into space. Be obsessed about the one who emptied himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Be obsessed about the one who was given the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Be obsessed about obeying the word and will of God. You be obsessed about Jesus. Be crazy for Christ because if his will is worth dying for, his will is also worth living for. So this morning, 
Live for the one who died for you. This morning, if you find yourself on the outside, you can be an insider in faith in Jesus Christ. If you are an insider, don't grow weary of doing good. Remember this gospel track was written to keep people from shrinking back and throwing in the towel in the midst of persecution. Don't let anything stop you, friend, from being crazy for Christ. Don't let disappointment, don't let disease, don't let suffering, don't let setback, don't let problems, don't let persecution, don't let anything keep you from being crazy for Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, if there's one here that's on the outside looking in, I pray that today, that by faith, they will accept the identity of Jesus as Christ, Son of God, and they'll go from no faith to faith, death unto life. And Father, for those of us who are on the inside, those of us who declare who you are, oh Father, help us never to grow weary of doing good. May we not shrink back. May we go strong into our culture with the message that changes life both now and forevermore. For it's only in Jesus Christ that property of God can be reclaimed. It's only through Jesus Christ that people can be restored to their maker. It is only in Jesus Christ that the devil is bound. It is only in Jesus Christ where we have victory. So Lord, help us to go forth boldly with the message of Christ, which is the message of victory and hope. Strengthen us this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.